0: Okay, a couple things I want to say uh, about prayer. you know we are praying and we're going to see that in our passage how important prayer is, and in your bulletins you have a prayer card for the summer mission trips that uh, several people will be going on. Make sure you please use that in prayer also uh, I we are we are seeking the Lord together for the prodigals. We really believe that God has given us you know, Lean has given us a sense that the prodigals are going to come home. And so we're, uh, I found this prayers for prodigals. Uh, there's on both ends here. If you, if you have a prodigal, take one of these. I think it'll help as well as those letters that we've written for the prodigals. Uh, we want to see God move mightily and, and bring them home. And so take advantage of that. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Life would be really scary without it. But we have confidence in Christ. We know what happens. And we know that you have already won. And so we want to just follow you. We want to learn. And so we ask that you teach us from your word. And especially today, this importance of prayer in the kingdom, especially as the end approaches. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Revelation chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. It's the last book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. Going through Revelation verse by verse. And today we are looking at the day of the Lord begins with prayer. Actually, as we will see when we read the passage, it begins with silence. And so the question is... Silence. Is silence good? Just think about this. Some of you can relate. Silence is golden. I heard actually someone say silence is golden, but duct tape is silver. I didn't understand what they meant by that. But uh, philosophical thought here. If a man speaks in a forest and there is no woman to hear him, Is he still wrong? So these are, (laughs) yes, (laughs) okay. (laughs) Okay, well, anyway, let's get serious now, okay. Back to our passage. We have been looking at the cosmic showdown between God and Satan that is about to come to its climax. God's judgment is about to be poured out, and the trumpets are just about to be blown. In our passage, we come to an unexpected silence and the importance of the prayers of the saints. The day of the Lord begins with prayer. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There were thunders, rumblings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Last week, we discussed the great awakening that's coming. In chapter 7, that was an interlude in between the 6th and 7th seal, showing God's plan that even in the midst of the tragedies of the end time judgment, there's going to be, first of all, the Jewish people are going to come to Christ, and then many, many of the Gentiles throughout the nations will also come to Christ in the greatest awakening, the greatest revival ever that the planet has ever seen. Today we're going to see that prayer will be key to bringing that revival as well as bringing God's plan to fruition. Prayer is essential. Both Elizabeth and I, were the first people in our family to come to Christ. So we both were raised in families that simply didn't know Jesus. When we got saved, we began to pray for our families. Now, we didn't even know each other at that time, okay, but we began to pray for our families and we began to share our faith with our families. Each of us saw each member of our family gradually pray and receive Christ and begin to follow Him. And we... Recognize and attribute that to prayer. Prayer is that important in God's kingdom plans. And it really does make a difference. At the end of time, prayer is still critical, perhaps even more so. The day of the Lord begins with prayer. In verse 1, Actually, it's the day of the Lord, begins with silence and then moves into prayer. Look at verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. <clears throat> and so we see this. Let me, let me kind of give an overview here of what, how we've gotten to this place, okay? There are seven seals, which we've already read. We're in the seventh seal Today And then there's going to be seven trumpets and seven bowls, but in between those cycles of judgment, there are these interludes where God gives us some important information. We just saw in between the sixth and seventh seal, the interlude of the great revival that is going to take place. What's fascinating about this is that when we get to the seventh seal, it's not like the first six seals. First six seals had judgment. And it mentioned judgment. And uh, whereas the seventh seal, there's no mention of judgment. It's opened and all of a sudden there's seven trumpets. What's interesting is it's very similar with the trumpets. You'll have these trumpets coming all about judgment. There'll be an interlude in chapter 10 and 11. And then the seventh trumpet also is there's no mention of judgment. And then the bowls come along. And so it seems like there is this the seals and the trumpets and the bowls it 's not speci- it 's not fully chronological all the way through. It seems that God comes around to the very end and then spirals back more intensely comes to the end, spirals back, and then com- and then finishes with the bowls of the ultimate final wrath of god and uh, and with these interludes. Uh, involved. And so here we see with the seventh seal, it's like, okay, now the contents are completely open. And now the day of judgment is about to begin. And he starts out with this silence. Silence as a pause for dramatic effect. All right, that sounds good. Okay, but you get the point, okay? Silence is a pause for dramatic offense because silence often accompanies judgment in the Bible. We see this in Zephaniah 1.7, in Habakkuk 2.20, in Zechariah 2.13. In my study notes of my Bible, it's, it brings out an important point here. Let me just read it. When the seventh seal is lifted, the scroll is finally completely open. The half hour of silence in heaven echoes Zephaniah seven, which states, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Indicating that the day of the Lord begins with the trumpets. And so he's setting us up, and that's the importance of the silence. But I also believe that silence gives room for the prayers of the saints to ascend. That's the context that we're going to see as it speaks of these prayers of the saints ascending up with the incense unto the Lord. Okay, so it gives time for that. So we see the importance of prayer. Prayer is is critical to the plan of God. We'll see that when we come to verses 4 and 5. So the day of the Lord begins with silence, and then it mentions angels. Verses 2 through 3, we see that angels attend God's judgment and assist the saints. It says, Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the gold altar in front of the throne. And so angels are involved. We see angels a lot in the Bible, don't we? They're mentioned a lot, though it doesn't tell us a lot about them. So we don't have a lot of information about them, but they are prevalent throughout the Scriptures. And here we see that they attend God's judgment as well as assist the saints. Uh, We saw last week that the angels participate in the great cosmic battle between God and Satan. Remember when we looked at Daniel chapter 12 and and we saw that cosmic battle taking place in the heavenlies with the angels and the demons. Very similar to, as I mentioned before, that uh, this present darkness from Frank Peretti, that kind of idea is actually happening in the spiritual realm. Okay. Now we're talking about prayer Today, but don't forget that this is in the middle of the greatest battle of all time, and how critical prayer is in regards to that, and the angels, what is their place? We see that the angels help the saints somehow, okay this is true in Hebrews chapter 14. it specifically says that the angels are there to help us that 's god's plan the angels Help us. So, but how does that work? Uh, Well, two questions we want to ask. Okay. First of all, who are the saints? Okay. If the angels help the saints, it's important to understand who are the saints. Let me say, in every single instance of the Bible, when it mentions saints, it is referring to all of God's people. There is no truth. ...to this idea that, that are, that's found in some realms... ...that there are some people who are super-Christians... ...and they're the saints... ...and the rest of us peons are less than them. Okay? That is not found in Scripture. It is not found anywhere in the Bible. In every instance of the Bible... ...the saints, the hages, or holy ones... Are, refers to all of God's people... The Holy Ones, we're not called Holy Ones because we're something special or great. We're called Holy Ones because of Jesus Christ. We've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, and He has accounted His righteousness to our account. We are declared righteous. We are not perfect And so the saints refers to everyone. So when it speaks of the prayers of the saints, it doesn't refer to this special, really holy group that we want to make sure they pray. I can't tell you how many times I get asked to pray for something because people think my prayers are more powerful than theirs. That is simply not true, okay? We are all, this is a reference to all of our prayers when we see this idea of the prayers of the saints, okay? So there is no Christian hierarchy of super saints versus normal people. Now, so it's all of God's people, but how do angels help us? When I was preparing this message, I remember back when I was just a kid, and uh, we were traveling on the Oregon coast, and there's a place there uh, called the Devil's Churn. Has anybody ever been there? Churn, Okay, yeah, really cool place, okay? Uh, it's where you're, you're up on this big rock, and it's kind of a, like a rounded thing here, and the, the water from the ocean flushes way up and then shoots back down, and, sh- and it's a super, super dangerous place, okay? If you were to fall into that, you would die, all right? That, that's all there is to it. Well, we're up there, and I slip, and I thought... When I slipped, that I should have fallen into the churn there, into the water. And I I really, it just, and then I found myself on another part of the rock, and it just seemed really weird to me. I looked up to my mom, and I said, Did you see that? And she said, Yes, I did. You fell, and it looked like you were gonna fall in, and then all of a sudden you were there on another part of the rock. And I said, Well, how did that happen? And my mom, she said, and none of us were believers at all. She said, well, I guess an angel must have done that. I don't know. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But I do know from Scripture there are angels that are there and they help us. Elizabeth uh, has a story of an angel that, a very uh, personal time for her, uh, that was a very difficult time. An angel came through the drive-thru when she was at the ban- as a bank teller that she can tell you about. And we don't know if that was an angel or not. But we do know from Scripture there are angels and that the people of God sometimes have encounters like this, okay? You always test it according to the Scriptures. That's all there is to it because there's also bad angels. But there are angels who are there to help us. Look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 20 through 23. We see an example of this where Daniel was praying and an angel, the angel Gabriel, came Uh, to help him in Daniel 9, verse 20. It says, While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my petition before Yahweh my God concerning the holy mountain of my God, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, came to me in my extreme weariness. About the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give it, for you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. So he's praying to God, an angel comes and helps him there. We see in chapter 10, also in Daniel, Because of Daniel's prayer, we see that angels, uh, there's an angelic battle that takes place in response to Daniel's prayers. Now, so we see that angels help us, especially in response to prayer. But we need to understand this, because sometimes people look at these truths, and they take it a little further than the Scriptures allow, in my opinion, okay? Some people see this, and they say, okay, that means we can command angels, And you have these groups of people who are sending angels here. We send the angels to such and such, or we send them over there, or whatever. And then other people ask God to send angels. Lord, please send your angels over here or over there. What I'm saying is, there's absolutely no Bible verse anywhere that teaches anything like that. We have no indication from Scripture that we're supposed to command angels or even ask to have them sent. Because if you notice from Daniel, he just prayed to Yahweh. He prayed to God. He asked God. God gets to be the Lord, and if He wants to send angels, He will send angels. Okay? He's in power. We simply seek Him. But He does use angels. Okay? So you don't have to... Ask him to send angels. Just ask him to do whatever it is you're asking. And if he feels like angels will be the great best way to do that, then he'll do that through the angels, okay? Once again, that's what we see as far as the example of Daniel and the rest of the scriptures. We pray right to God because if you're a believer, you are a saint, right? So you can go say to somebody this today, maybe at lunch or whatever, you know, that uh, I'm Saint so-and-so, okay? It is true if you are a believer. All right, now let's get to verses 4 and 5 because this is the, where prayer comes in here, okay? Powerful prayer initiates God's judgment. He says, The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth There were thunders, rumblings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So powerful prayer initiates God's judgment. Paige Patterson in his commentary makes this note. He says, the emphasis here not only grasps the approachability of the unapproachable transcendent and holy God, but also hints at the effectiveness of prayer. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, James five sixteen, Prayer is the God-ordained conduit through which he has determined to channel his sovereign power and response to the concerns of the saints. This effectiveness of prayer becomes apparent in the judgment that follows. God's plan is to work through our prayers, prayers in conjunction with his will. And so we see this powerful prayer. I want you to turn to James chapter 5. Patterson quoted James 5 verse 16, but I want you to see it in the whole context. Look at James five sixteen through 18. And important passage on prayer. Some wonderful things that we can learn from it. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The intense prayer of the righteous is very powerful. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Now, here we see in the context of confessing our sins to one another and praying for each other that there's healing that can take place. It says the intense prayer of the righteous is very powerful. And then it gives an example. And the example is Elijah. Okay? Elijah, but notice what he says here Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The NIV, I think, says something like El- Elijah was a man just like us, he's not a superhero. He's not a super saint. He's just like you. No different. Just like he prayed, you can pray. That's the point he's making in this passage in James. Just like you, he prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. That's powerful prayer. Some of the people were not very happy with that. Okay, and then he prayed again, and it rained, okay? Now, we need to understand how important this is. But with this, and it's very important, okay? So with this prayer, powerful prayer is in response to God's leading. We're going to see this when we look at the life of Elijah in just a moment again. But I want to say this, powerful prayer is in response to, to God's leading we do not try to get God in on our plan we seek to discover what his plan is and pray in accordance with that and that's when we see the awesome power of God we don't try to get God in on our plan we seek to get in on his plan Two different people sent me an email this week and I found it quite curious. It was about this, apparently this actually happened, I looked up the news account and it took place where a pastor in Zimbabwe was attempting to walk on water to show his congregation how, how Jesus did it and he ended up getting eaten by an alligator. yeah. Two different people sent me that email. Anyway, okay, but I think it is an illustration of us trying to do something and make God get in on it rather than listening. I don't think he heard right. Right? Okay, okay. Okay. Now, let me show you the example of Elijah. Look at 1 Kings chapter 18 verses 36 and 37. 1 Kings, what we, this is the con in the context. Elijah is now challenging the prophets of Baal. He's up at Mount Carmel. By the way, if you're interested, we should be getting a brochure pretty soon for our trip to Israel. And we'll go to Mount Carmel, right where this actually happened. And uh, Mount Carmel, Elijah is uh, challenging the false gods of Baal and their followers. And basically the contest was, you build an altar, I'll build an altar. You call out to your God to bring down fire to burn up the sacrifice. And then I'll call down uh, to, to Yahweh to, to burn up the sacrifice. He let them go first. Nothing happened. He actually makes fun of them in the passage. And then at our point here, we see that uh, 1 Kings 18, verse 36, where Elijah takes his turn. It says, At the time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet approached the altar and said... Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that at your word I have done all these things answer me Lord answer me so that this people will know that you Yahweh are God and that you have turned their hearts back now he's using this is a power encounter but notice what he says this phrase here at the end of verse 36 and that at your word I have done all these things. Elijah didn't come up with this idea. He didn't say, Hey, God, I'm going to go do this, and since I have enough faith, you have to come through and, and perform this. Elijah heard from God first. Then he simply responded and did it, and he saw the incredible, powerful move of God. That's what we see in the Scriptures. Not a bunch of lone rangers who think there's something hot and they go ahead and do something and expect God to come through. No, these are people who are seeking God, not trying to get Him in on their plan, but getting in on His plan, hearing His voice. Okay? I want you to turn another passage that will bring this out as well. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. In my opinion, a very critical passage for understanding real biblical prayer. 1 John five, fourteen. he states, Now this is the confidence we have before him. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked him for. So, notice, if we... If we know that He hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask for Him, we like that part, right? But notice it's in the context, whenever you ask for anything according to His will. He's the Lord, we want to get in on His plan. What is His will? When we discover His will and we pray in line with that, that's when we're going to see the awesome move of God and the power of God. This is very similar to a couple other passages in Scripture that sometimes Christians confuse. For instance, John 14, 13, where it states, Jesus says, if you ask for anything in my name, I will do it. We, in our Western way of thinking, we say, oh, well, that means all I have to do is tack on at the end of my prayer in the name of Jesus, and then I get it, right? So whatever you want, I want a million bucks, in the name of Jesus, okay, or whatever. But that's not at all what he was saying, okay? That's the, in that time, in that culture, they would have never even thought that. In the name of Jesus meant in his lordship. He's the Lord. He's in control. It meant the same exact thing that the first John passage is saying, in accordance to his will. Another passage in John 15, 7. He says, if you abide in me and I abide in you, ask for anything that you have and it will be done to you. Okay? That also has been misconstrued. Thinking, okay, I just have to have a relationship with him and then I get to ask. And if I have faith, then I get whatever I want. But that's not at all. What it was saying to abide in him meant to abide in him in the relationship of him being Lord and our being the follower. It meant they all because they all end with the same phrase. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask for him. So they're all saying the same thing. But first, John five is the clearest for us Westerners. Whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we don't try to get God in on our plan. We seek to listen to him and get in on his plan. Then we see incredible, powerful things take place. Watchman Nee said this. God will only back and bless what he initiates. Peter Lord gives us some help in this idea of hearing God. This is a great book if you want to learn how to hear the voice of the Lord. It's called Hearing God by Peter Lord. And in this, he makes a statement. I want you to listen to this. He says, have you ever wondered why most people pray for only five minutes, repeat everything twice, and then feel like the prayer time lasted for 30 minutes? Have you ever wondered why so few people spend any time in prayer at all? Have you ever thought of the fact that most religious schools do not offer a course in prayer? Yet it was the only thing the disciples asked Jesus to teach them. And he did by example and instruction. The basic answer to all these questions is that when prayer is a one-way conversation... It is a very dull and boring experience. And that is exactly what prayer is to most people. Do you talk very long on the telephone when you're not sure there's somebody on the other end? Of course not. You need to hear the other person's voice to have a meaningful conversation. So too is prayer transformed when it moves from a monologue to a dialogue. When you listen to God speak after you have spoken or when you listen to him speak before you utter a word, it's about the relationship. We speak. We have this conversation with God. That's biblical prayer. So in light of this, powerful prayer in response to God's leading, powerful prayer to advance the kingdom we saw that from last week that this great revival takes place i think it's connected with this to let us know that our prayers make a difference in advancing the kingdom of god especially in seeing people saved when i was 21 years old and i radically surrendered my whole life to the lord i walked into a church and this little old lady comes up to me Seemed like she was even running. She came up to me and she said, Larry, have you been saved? That's a strange question to ask a stranger, okay? <laughs> but she knew my name. And I just kind of looked at her. And I said, yeah. And she said, you don't remember me, do you? She said, I'm Mrs. Rhine, your sixth grade teacher. And I've been praying for you ever since the sixth grade was her words. I knew at that moment that's why I'm in the kingdom. That God used her prayers to bring me into the kingdom. Where would I be without Mrs. Ryan? She was a nice teacher. I remember her at Harriet Bishop Elementary School. (laughs) Okay, A nice teacher, but I didn't even know she was Christian. I wasn't a Christian. I was just Incredible. Prayer is powerful. Uh, Danielle has a story. I, I was going to ask her, not Danielle, but the, the other Daniel. That one. Okay. <laughs> that, but we didn't have time, and so someday I'm going to have her share it too. There's just some incredible stories of God moving because of prayer. Powerful prayer to advance the kingdom. And remember in the context here, powerful prayer as spiritual warfare. Daniel Akin, in his commentary talks about this he says prayer activates us and engages us in spiritual warfare in the present and also the future and it is not a battle a war likely to be entered Ephesians 6 18 tells us that prayer is essential as we engage in spiritual battle and must be constant alert and persevering we should offer these prayers and supplications for ourselves and for all the saints. Remembering that all the saints means all of God's people. And so we see the powerful prayer as spiritual warfare. Uh, and and I would say especially the need is there for the persecuted church. We know now that the, pers- the persecution is rising at levels it's never been at before that Satan is getting mad and Christians are being killed for their faith right this moment. And we need to seek the Lord on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So what does the prayer life of a Christian look like? And when I say a Christian, I I have in parentheses a follower of Christ. People can say they're a Christian, but in the Bible, a true Christian is a follower of Christ. And you know what a follower of Christ is? Someone who follows Christ. Yes, good, okay. And especially in prayer. He's taught us about prayer and shown us about prayer. Here's three things to consider. First of all, a daily quiet time. Every believer needs to have a daily quiet time. Jesus said specifically in Matthew 6, 6, go into a closet. He doesn't mean a literal closet. Although, did you see, uh, what was it, War Room? That was a great movie, okay? That's what I'm talking about, all right? But find a place alone where you seek the Lord in prayer. Jesus also exemplified it. In Mark 1, it specifically says, A great while before day, Jesus went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. That was his regular practice. He would spend time with the Father, hear what the Father is saying, and then move in that. That's how we're to live. A daily quiet time. There was this guy who decided he wanted to look at, you know, go look at several church buildings. And, uh, and so he flew, first of all, to San Francisco and he went to this one church and he saw this golden phone on the back wall. And he asked about it. He said, what is that? And they said, well, that's a direct line to God. And it costs $10,000 a minute. Direct line to God, though. So then he travels to another church in Chicago. Same phone, same explanation. Then he goes to another place, same phone, same explanation. Then he came to Harvest Fellowship in Minnesota, okay? And we had this golden phone. He asked about it, you know, and he was expecting to hear the same thing. We said, yeah, that's a phone that has a direct line right to God, and it costs 25 cents. And he says, "Everything else, everywhere else it was $10,000. It's a local call. <laughs> I love Minnesota. Right? No, listen here, okay? It's a local call wherever you are and it doesn't even cost 25 cents, right? Okay, so that daily quiet time, how important that is. In the Bible, we see this idea of continuous prayer. In 1 Thessalonians 5:17. pray continuously. You're thinking, how do you do that? How can you be praying continuously? Well, I have here continuous prayer while practicing the presence of God. Let me ask you a question. I want you to be honest, okay? How many of you, at least at times, talk to yourself? Okay. How many of you answer? I'm just kidding. Okay. Okay. You talk to yourself, right? Well, why not talk to God? He's everywhere. That's good theology, right? So no matter where you go, He's right there with you. Why not, instead of talking to yourself, talk to Him? He will listen and sometimes talk back. And so we want to practice that presence, recognizing He's everywhere I go. I can talk to Him no matter what. No matter where I've been even, I can talk to my God. So continuous prayer while practicing the presence of God. And then third, corporate prayer. Matthew 18, 19 through 20. That where two or three are gathered, I am surely in their midst. That doesn't mean he doesn't hear the the private prayer. He's already told us to do that, but he is saying there's something special about when God's people gather together specifically to seek the Lord. Corporate prayer. Our church we follow the Acts 20:20 model which is basically, we gather together in the large group on Sunday mornings, but we also gather together in the small groups from house to house throughout the week. And in those, we are seeking the Lord in behalf of each other. It's that very, very vital that we're a part of this, that we see the importance of corporate prayer and how powerful it can be. Okay, so that's what the prayer life of a Christian looks like. Our passage ends with this interesting phrase. The rumblings, uh, there were thunders, rumblings, lightning, and an earthquake. We see this passage as well several times throughout the book of Revelation. This phrase in chapter 11, 19, 16, 18, and 19, verse 6. What I believe it's indicating here is the power of God and that it is certain that God wins because in each of these instances it brings us right to the end and then circles around, brings us right to the end, rumblings and thunder and stuff, right to the end. We see that at the very end of each of these sections here. And so I think he's saying that we can be certain that God wins. In fact, God has already won. okay. But there is a real battle we face and will face in the end. Let me read something from Essential Spiritual Warfare by Scott Moreau. Gives a great illustration. He says, At the turn of the century during British colonial rule in India, a government administrator was traveling in the jungle south of Calcutta. While approaching a small government house... They were to stay in, a servant bolted out of the house white as a sheet. He had found a 20-foot-long python curled around a piece of furniture. A full-grown python is deadly and powerful and can swallow a deer or a pig whole. The men locked the python inside and checked their ammunition. They had one bullet that was strong enough to kill a snake of this size and only if it was a direct hit to the head. Taking careful aim... The administrator shot the python right in the head. But rather than dying, the python became crazed, thrashing about violently, smashing furniture, knocking out lights, and demolishing the interior of the small house. Finally, after an hour and a half of this, the snake died. What a vivid picture of the spiritual battle we face. God dealt Satan a crushing blow through Jesus' death on the cross. We could say that we are now living in that one and a half hours, as it were, and Satan is thrashing about an evil destruction, but the fatal blow has been struck. On the cross, the Son of God won the ultimate battle over evil and death, the cross and the resurrection. Now, in the very end of time, the final thrashing of Satan will be the worst, but he is a defeated foe. Our part is not to worry about our toenails or gardens or golf games. It is to find out our part in advancing the kingdom, especially through prayer. Let's pray. Father, we seek you. For your power, your strength, your wisdom. We confess that we are weak and we are ignorant. But you have a great plan. A plan in accordance to your word that can... Where we can even see the incredible hand of God do marvelous things. We want to get in on your plan. We do not want to play church as usual. We don't want to just focus on ourselves all the time. We long to be a part of this plan, advancing the kingdom. And if we're getting near the end, Father, we especially want to see you move mightily before the very end. And I think of the prodigals right now. Each of us knows someone. Who is straight away they're living in sin, they're not following you at all, and our hearts are broken, and we confess that our hearts are nowhere near as broken as yours are it is for this for these people and so please, Father, before it's too late, bring them back in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, please as you've shared with us that That is your plan, that you're going to bring the prodigals back this year. We pray, please, oh God, do this work. Do whatever it takes to wake them up, to see the danger, and also to see your love. And that they would turn back to you, just as the prodigal son turned back to his father, and that you, we know, will run to them. And so will we. Help them come back to you use each of us for your glory in whatever part it is that we're to play in this grand plan. Help us to be open. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to to see what you're doing and get in on your plan. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, if maybe they know about you, but they don't have this kind of relationship with you, I ask that they today even would make certain of their salvation that they would repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And they would say, I want to get baptized and outwardly, publicly confess Jesus is my Lord. Show them, Lord, that you're real, that your plan is true. Thank you, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.